I'm gonna need you to say more stuff just in case. <laughs> my, my cup is yellow. Mm -hmm. My favorite club soda is lime flavored. <laughs> this is like when you're in uh, kindergarten and they're like, write something about yourself. <laughs> and they're like, I'm wearing red shoes. They are new shoes. I got them today. It's like the test in Blade Runner to see whether or not you're developing feelings have you ever been kissed by someone you love interlinked <laughs> have you ever had dinner outside on a hot summer's evening cells <laughs> is it because i changed my lights to purple you're like immediately <laughs> thinking about blade runner every time every time my stupid brain is like tony is uh in a ridley scott movie it's also the exact same thing as when you're like learning a new language and they're like okay just try some phrase and you're like my name is anthony yeah i don't like mushrooms on my pizza my favorite school subject is math yeah we're not recording right we sure are oh my god <laughs> <laughs> no that's not fair <laughs> <laughs> how much of it no oh my god i feel like you fucking like, <laughs> took a picture of me naked or something <laughs> <laughs> you evil asshole <laughs> i could somehow suspect on your face that you look yeah that we are recording and did you turn the lights down a little bit so i'd have a little bit of trouble reading your face no i just wanted a blade runner reference oh i love that movie it's so good the new one's even really good the new one is really good i mean i don't want to over um yeah we have to keep this episode under two hours so let's not right right yeah we don't we don't want to have me talking about ryan gosling again but what i do want to know is how you're doing and how your week is uh i'm doing pretty well actually yeah you're starting to grow out more right yeah i've been i went to a good friend of mine his home i went to his house again this weekend and this is not like anything notable like i left the house and went somewhere and socialized that kind of is not notable now though it is right and um it's just really nice to be around people again and to not have that anxiety of whether or not you're you're doing something wrong or um you're putting yourself or the people you care about at risk which is always something that was buzzing in the back of my mind every single time people came around which is really fucked up yeah it's it's really awesome to just be able to get out see people out and breathe closely in, in proximity to others yeah it's been like summerly weather for the last two and a half months and it's sort of remarkable how little i've kind of felt the the vibe of summer just because you like life is just disturbed and the regular rhythm of the season is sort of like you're kind of blinded from it or something. Well, you're not like a super outdoors guy to begin with, though, right? No, but, you know, like when I when I was able to pre-COVID, I did go out more, you know, obviously, I hope <laughs> at least 200% more. But then like when I lived in Ottawa, like I was always out and exploring and yeah, going out for lunch and like seeing the city. Like I felt like the city was part of my life and 
living in a smaller town in an inaccessible neighborhood with my parents for the past few years, basically just being like an IT, like web developer workhorse and sort of like marginally socializing. There's all the, all those like life balancing elements have been kind of absent. I, I'm painting a pretty terrible picture, <laughs> but yeah, disabled lives can be very isolated. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as we are about to get into with this movie, but a big part of that is where you live. Like, there's not, I mean, I've never been to Thunder Bay, but I don't think I've been to Thunder Bay. But I can assume that there's probably just not that much to really explore around you, right? Well, I mean, that is an assumption. There's all kinds of things to do in Thunder Bay, but most of them are outdoorsy activities. A lot of my friends like are... Like hiking and stuff. Yeah, they love hiking and they own cottages and, and like a boat is a major milestone for them in their 30s. And like they fish and 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 hunt and drink a lot. And they um, their families have camps or cottages or whatever. And quite often the cottages are elaborate homes away from home yeah. that have been in the family for many decades and are like replete with like history and just like summer is the season where they sort of live outside a lot of the time. And if you're not taking advantage of the outdoor scene in Thunder Bay in the summer, then you're, yeah, I don't know. It's the one sort of escape that you have from our winters, which are very secluding and cold and unaccommodating and terrible i can't even get on my fucking driveway in the worst of winter in thunder bay what do you do well like we hire a guy to come plow our driveway but there's been days where i have had to like work remote or even use a sick day because the weather conditions are too shitty and i can't get in onto my parabus <laughs> now that now that weather has started to get better i've being out a lot more as you said like ottawa is a really amazing city to explore especially in the summer months and as a result of covid and all of that i've been exploring and then running into people i haven't seen since before covid just randomly yeah every single time the conversation ends up because of me talking about how accessible COVID has made me realize the world could be pretty easily. Yeah. And being able to work remotely is such a major part of that. Oh, yeah. That's one that's like one remaining like trickle of anxiety that I have in my life is that people are going to now start revoking whatever advantages we've sort of gained yeah. from exploring remote work possibilities. Like I know that the place that I work for is going to tell us that we're a brick and mortar shop and we should, we have to go back now. And I, I'm disappointed that that is going to happen, but I think it'll be the catalyst for me to um, maybe explore other possibilities. And <laughs> even talking about it, you can't commit. I know you're like the catalyst to uh, potentially <laughs> thinking about, the possibility, hypothetically, of another <laughs> world where there's a universe in which a man who looks like me maybe thinks about. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sure there's at least a couple parallel universes where I have another job. <laughs> in another city. The thing is, I, li I like my workplace and I, I really enjoy the people that I work with. And yeah. I actually think that 
you know, my managers and the people who have uh, like worked above me over the last several years have been very, very good to me. And so it's hard for me to leave this job because it's been one thing, like in addition to my parents and immediate family that have remained like stable and constant in some pretty um, tumultuous times. Like, you know, pre-COVID, my parents like each had their own respective health crisis that lasted over the course of at least a year. And there were other things for me, the personal crap that occurred that I, that, uh, was pretty hard and so yeah it's just like the last four five years ever since i moved back to thunder bay yeah uh, have been troubling and maybe that's just fucking life obviously like you know that's just being an adult and let loose from the comforts of uh academic life and having some more responsibility and yada 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 well it's definitely easier to hold on to the comfort and you have you have a safety net, a social safety net, a financial safety net. You know, it's easy to hold on to those things. You're right that it is largely um, just a thing that happens to people around our age where you start to get stuck in a groove and you're just like, well, this is working for me, so don't rock the boat too much. You can just change a little things in your orbit. But the other side of that, I think, is... Um, and we've probably talked about this a bunch, but I'm very conscious of the fact that as a disabled person, there are so many things in my life I have no control of. Yeah. So with the things that I can control, I really hold on to. Yeah. And then the things that are working for me, I don't really want to disrupt them. I, I know, but I mean, just because something is comfortable doesn't mean it's functional. That's true. And, I th- I think like my my friend has this joke about me as a person like when we were when we were at Carlton together like my friend was a year ahead of me and he was like the captain of the Carlton Ravens soccer team he was like really successful academically and um athletically and socially and um I when I moved to Carlton like he's the guy who basically pulled the key out of my scooter when I destroyed a half dozen tables at the cafeteria my second day in the university setting. And he was very rightfully skeptical of my capacity to look after myself. Uh, and uh, I mean, you didn't set a great first impression. <laughs> no, no. I think I actually fulfilled like or validated all of his concerns in one He's like, wow, this took two days. Yeah, yeah. It was like four it was a 45 second incident and it completely confirmed all of his concerns. But in any case, like he had this joke where he's like, I've I've watched you like tolerate like the most minor of inconveniences, even if it's like you being in my room in resident like in residence commons, like my kitchen area. And we're we're having dinner together and you can't quite get your scooter like adjacent to the table enough to really like eat comfortably over it. So you kind of you kind of settle for this like disastrously like unergonomic like seating situation and you get a, a food all over your lap, which you subsequently clean up like with a look of embarrassment. Anyway, he's like, there's a quotient of discomfort that you are always willing to 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 settle for. And rather than look for a solution, you just sort of assume that it's part of being disabled and you tolerate it. And I was like, that's a profound insight because it's kind of fucking true. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you do have to be able to find the balance of, you know, picking your battles. Because if you try to solve every little thing, you're going to make yourself insane. You do have to be able to roll with the punches and go with the flow to a decent extent. Otherwise, you'll never leave your routine, right? Some of it, I think, is um, is disability related. Like it's like a kind of a CP kind of lack of situ- situational awareness problem. But the interesting thing is that, like in an academic sense, or for my work or my studies, like computer science and mathematics, like are problem solving centric. The whole all you ever do is look for solutions to common problems or how to apply your knowledge toward existing real life like implications and uh, like data models and stuff but also it's like you um a big part of computer science and development is how to automate processes using computers like how to remove the human element in order to uh, reduce the potential for human error and so it's funny to me that professionally, like I always sort of think, how can I solve this problem? But then in my own life, when it comes to like accessibility gaps or like my inability to do something independently, I don't always think like, how can this be better? I just sort of settle for like, yeah, this is just like the reality of being disabled. And I know like it's such a it's such a hard balance to to strike really and i i think it's symptomatic of um of disabled people like having caretakers and of the of the typical dynamic of that situation being you know it's on the um the orthopedic or the physiotherapist or the the guardian to like figure out how anthony or jamie should do something and you get so accustomed to that as a disabled person and it never quite goes away like no one ever takes off the fucking training wheels so so some part of you or some part of me i'm not saying this is you because i actually don't consider you to be uh, one of these kinds of disabled people i suppose is sometimes you just sort of like unconsciously wait for the able-bodied people around you to like solve the problem and that's that's an aspect of my disabled experience that is extremely, um, first of all, ableist, like because I think that this is a real thing. Maybe it's not even, but then also that I uh, defer solutions to my own problems to, to the able-bodied people around me. Do you have an example? Because like, in the example you just gave where you're eating at a table and your scooter isn't quite lined up, probably because it's 45 feet wide and super impractical you spin your chair and you're leaned over and you're sliding off the seat and dropping spaghetti and ramen noodles all over the floor yeah but you're not saying to your friend hey why can't i eat normally what can i do to fix this you're just accepting that that's where you're at and you're eating yeah i'm like well problem number one is i'm hungry and then, <laughs> and then the reality is also like, oh, I'm in an inaccessible room and I'm in my scooter and it's not easy for me to transfer out and eat at the table properly for whatever reason. Uh, so this is how it is, I guess. So do you have an example of a time where you were kind of just waiting for an able-bodied person to figure it out for you? Do you mean like OTs and stuff? Like you're like, 
Well, I guess, uh, you know, I can't really get these foot plates to work, but I know he didn't give me a good chair, so I guess I just have to deal with it. Is, is that what you mean? Yeah, well, we've talked about, like, the my foot pedals on my Permobile power chair and how uh, I'm constantly frustrated with my inability to retract them so I can go to the, the bathroom quickly or efficiently when I really, really have to go. There's that. Like, I feel like there's a solution there that I could really work on. I could even combine, you know, like my technical competencies to see if there's a DIY solution around that. Or, you know, like, is there an extension to this chair that like allows you to retract the um, pedals automatically or something? Yeah. But there, there are other examples, like little things around my house uh, with my parents um, inefficiencies and stuff that I tolerate. Like my shower chair isn't exactly accessible and the bathroom that I use that despite having a re- like a super wide doorway, like, you know, has zero grab bars and the, the tub is, it's just a standard tub unit that has a large lip. And in order to get into my shower, I have to do like a, a dip essentially on both my arms to like like hoist myself up onto the seat every single time and then lift my legs over top of the lip of the tub and shift over and shower. And like for me right now, that isn't too bad, but like first thing in the morning uh, before work or on a day where I'm particularly sore uh, in my upper body, like it is a precarious transfer. And like we have the resources to install uh, a properly accessible shower unit where I probably don't have to do a whole lot of physical labor to complete this task, but I just kind of don't do it. Well, I think your mom is also counting on you leaving. Yeah, well, there's also that too, is the this sort of implication or suggestion that like this isn't your permanent residence, despite the fact that I've been here for six fucking years. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a kitchen table in our, in our primary like family room in the house that is basically like a breakfast nook. It's meant for two people, my mom and my dad. And we've been sitting at this table, like me eating every evening. And it's another situation again, where I can't get my lap fully under the fucking table. So half my dinner ends up in my crotch area. And then there's a bunch of jokes from my dad about how I'm saving some food for later. And I feel like a fucking baby in a high chair every fucking time I sit, sit down to eat there, you know, like it's, it's, it's annoying. And I complain about every time how difficult it is to pull the chair up into that. Like we just got a new table that, that like comfortably sits more than two people. And this is six years later (laughs) and God knows why that is the case. Like, why didn't I just go to Lowry's myself and be like, fuck it. Like, mom, this is the table we're getting. I'll pay for it myself. And it's fine. Like I just sit there and be like, well, you know, life is inaccessible and food on my lap is normal. It's more normal than it being on my plate, et cetera, et cetera. I get what you're saying. I I think that I'm honestly like, I'm, I, I definitely have bouts of that where I'm just like, I don't have the mental bandwidth to do everything I have to do in a day plus trying to solve this problem. Yeah. Like, especially with OTs and professionals where that's their job. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I need a new wheelchair, but I need a new way to drive it. Cause this one isn't really working for me. 
figure it out. And they're like, oh, I don't know. And then now it's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll find something. So now I've literally been Googling stuff, sending it to the sales rep being like, hey, can we try this? They're like, oh yeah, good idea. Yeah. And it's like, it's awesome that they're receptive to it, but it's also frustrating that like on top of my work and everything else in my life, I also have to like spend time on that. So I get it. It's a, it's a balance issue. This is a small aside. My uncle called me the other day because we actually had a conversation on the weekend about how annoying my foot pedals are. And um, he actually purchased a power chair from uh, from a, a dump, I guess, locally. This guy that he, he knows like had a power chair on hand. That's one of the best medical vendors, by the way. Is it is it a local dump? The dump, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you being sarcastic? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, so this guy had this guy had a power chair, and I don't know how my uncle knew. Um, but so I, I should give some context. He's a retired uh, engineer for CP Rail. He's like a very uh, curious and um, and uh, entrepreneurial guy. He loves making things. He has a 3D printer in his home that is capable of car- uh, carving granite for for countertops and stuff. Like it, it's like like a heavy duty uh, raw materials. Like a CNC machine. A CNC machine. Thank you. Um, and so he's constantly kind of like leveraging a bunch of really interesting tools uh, for the purposes of robotics and for um, like DIY projects around the house. Yeah, is it a tinkerer? Yeah, he's a tinkerer and he's driven by like an innate curiosity. They, there's there's never any commerce involved. It's it's always purely for the sake of the problem at hand. And I love I love talking to him and I love working with him because. He's not belabored, you know, by 25 years of uh, cynicism toward his trade or something like that. It's it's purely like, what can I do for fun that might also improve something? Yeah. And yeah. So so I told him about this issue that I'm having with um with my foot pedals. And he, so he started looking at the um, power chair joystick that he got with the unit that he recovered from the dump. And so he was researching the um, how to interface with the joystick and what the capabilities are, right. and how we could potentially use like a like an ARM processor unit, like a Raspberry Pi, to uh, create a device that would allow me to recoil the the foot pedals remotely over over Bluetooth, like with an application that we could write quite easily on on uh, on a mobile phone. And, you know, that's maybe like a six month project, like if we have to do a whole lot of learning and stuff like that, but it's still really, really fun and like very industrious and cool. And there, there's like, I brought this up to you off the prod podcast and you were telling me that, you know, there are existing features that you can um, purchase for your power chair that will allow for this, but they're, they're really pricey. Well, not actually for what you want to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anytime you want it, it's always cheaper to DIY, right? Especially yeah. in the medical space because it's an insane markup for wheelchairs and any sort of medical equipment. But but the problem is when you DIY, like quite often, if there's any amount of urgency behind it or if it's a vital need, then it, it's much, much harder to kind of pursue because you yeah. have to be... There has to be little enough at stake that if you fail, um, 
the mere the mere sort of pursuit of the project is worthwhile like what you learn from it and and the fun of like discovery and exactly like diy is only worthwhile if it's just for fun and quite often the kinds of things that you might need to do to your chair or to your mobility aid like are 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 vital or i think i have that bug that makes me want to be a diy person I'm always trying to find ways to tinker within my reach, you know, like computer stuff and tech stuff. I'm always like trying to figure out a way to program some new thing to control my home or whatever. Yeah. Uh, But I definitely have to resort a lot to commercial projects just because I can't expect that somebody is going to have the same passion for the exact same project with the same outcome as me and I'm going to need physical help to actually get that yeah and it's going to be way more work for you to guide an attendant or like a like a a basically like non-invested third party to being your um your it's like it's like just trying to explain to someone how to assemble a piece of Ikea furniture is hard enough, let alone trying to get them to like administer your fucking um, software development uh, project. Yeah. I mean, it definitely depends, right? Some people like all friend hand because they'll be into it and they'll be like, Oh, that's so cool that we're able to do this. Just tell me what we need to do. And, and then they're invested in the result. Also, you know, you have to be wary of, using someone's kindness and just being like okay so now for my dinner call i'm going to install motorized curtains you know yeah the only thing i have to worry about with my uncle is like if the problem if the scope of the problem gets too large and it's actually not feasible anymore and like we just need to know when to stop because we're wasting our time or like if the problem that we run into becomes like slightly uninteresting like from a technical point of view you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't hold our interest anymore. Well, I think for you, like, the actual goal will drive you for a pretty far distance. Because you've been complaining about foot pedals since you've gotten this chair. And I've had it for five years. Yeah. Fucking complacency, man. It's a real thing for disabled people. Well, because you do have to be able to, like, know when to just call it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I almost did the whole verse of uh, the Kenny Rogers song again. Oh no, again. Now that that joke was funny enough the first time, Tony. Yeah, I mean, you definitely need to be able to call it and fold yourself. <laughs> I almost don't know another way to say it. <laughs> because otherwise, yeah, you can you can dive a little bit deep into a rabbit hole of spinning out of control wishing you had a thing that you can't get or spinning out of control, trying to achieve some goal that's probably not worth the effort. But then you get the distinction of doing more for yourself than the, the professional care workers or physiotherapists or yeah. occupational therapists who, who are, are otherwise like assigned that particular task. That's essentially how I got my job, right? Is because I've, been so interested in this for so long that eventually uh, I'll see professionals like occupational therapists and we'll be trying to come up with a solution we can't they can't come up with it so then I go back my own and I figure something out and then I next time I see them 
I'll tell them about it, and then they essentially want to use that solution for the next client. And then it just spirals into sort of becoming a consultant for those kinds of things. It's a little crazy that there isn't like a technical or engineering or develop software development component to being an occupational therapist at this point, given how much technology is deeply woven into the lives of disabled people, right? Yeah. Like, because what do they do? It's surprisingly rare for a very tech-savvy OT to exist. Yeah, like they, like, don't get me wrong, like they will understand the, uh, they'll understand how to prescribe the equipment. They they know the ins and outs of the equipment, like very, very well. And they can be very, very good at finding the right people for specific needs. Um, They're also good at sometimes finding funding that you mm -hmm. wouldn't otherwise be able to get because everything is so expensive. Yeah, we don't want to knock those roles, but like, I just think that there should be more involvement of disabled people in the administration of their care yeah. and in understanding their needs and figuring out solutions. Like we need a group or something. <laughs> there are groups popping up. Uh, I'll tell you more actually, because there's some interesting stuff I just realized is happening in Thunder Bay in this area. Thunder Bay? Why are you reading about Thunder Bay outside of this podcast? <laughs> I'm just trying to understand where you're coming from, Tim. <laughs> I want to get to understand you on a deeper level. So every day I check the weather in Thunder Bay <laughs> just to see what kind of day your dad's having. <laughs> oh, that's so funny because that, that's actually the best way to understand my dad's day. Yeah. If it's raining, he's not having a great time. It's like, I'll be like, hey, dad, how's it going? He'll be like, it's cloudy outside. Mm-hmm. Your mother left the window open overnight and it's chilly in the house. This is July, Joe. It's supposed to be warm. What are we doing here? And then on good days, he'll be whistling and like singing Stompin' Tom Connors. And he'll be like, it's a hot day in July, Joe. Put down the video game. I'm the same way, honestly, all summer long. I spend... At least five minutes every day looking at the weather for the week just to see if there's any changes. Yeah, you're you're a heat freak. I'm a heat freak for sure. Humidity is my friend. Yeah, like sometimes I'll we'll start the Discord and I'll see your video like like before we play Rock League together in the evening when the sun goes down, and you'll be like real you'll be like pretty sweaty, like visibly like hot. And I'll be like, Tony, are you comfortable? And you'll be like, Oh, I fucking love it. Yeah, it's so nice. It'll be like 30 degrees and I'll be guilty if I'm not on my balcony after dinner. Surprisingly, you're not shirtless at the beach more often, Tony. I, I suntanned my feet the other day. That was an experience. Excuse me? You took your shoes off in public? In public and socks. Oh my God, Tony. Well, realistically, the beach was too crowded anyway. So I decided to do that to just kind of thin it out a bit. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that would be how I would decrowd the beach. Yeah. So I was like, uh, you know, I'd rather get some more of the sun to myself. So let me just take my socks off real quick. <laughs> I don't think there's a good really foot. Yeah, it's not our fault, though. The blood just doesn't go there. And we're not weight bearing. They get all twisted. and Yeah. Yeah. They're never good. It's... This is the first time I've brought up really feet on the podcast. I know. Usually you're... you do it and I'm like, shut up. yeah well i mean is do you mean is there anything else you need to vent about your feet no i i hate them 
so disgusting that it pulled me. I'm trying to get over it. Yeah, you're a much more efficient complainer than I am, Tony. <laughs> can I can I raise a non sequitur? Right. You look very Hollywood Italian today. Are you calling me a Guido? That's like Jersey Shore. You're saying I'm Jersey Shore. No, I'm not saying you're Jersey Shore. I'm saying you're uh, New Jersey Soprano. Oh. You look like Christopher Maltesanti right now. Well, from you, that's like the utmost compliment. Besides, if you said it looked like Tony Soprano, I'd be like, thank you, but I need to start dieting. No, I mean, Tony Soprano like was pretty handsome in, in True Romance. What is it that makes me look... Uh... Hollywood Italian. It's the polo you're wearing because it's like it's like white trim but jet black, and then you you got like a certain amount of like non shaven look on your face. You got that shadow. Okay, it's very Italian, and then your hair is slicked back. So you really you honestly look like you're about to be um in, like uh, indicted into the family or something. I don't know how good I would be honestly as a gangster. What would my role be in the mob? Right, I wouldn't be able to. Oh, you'd be a good, you'd be a great money launderer. Like just running the casino or something? Yeah. Or I don't know, you could probably like weave disability into it somehow. A disabled casino where all the slot machines are slightly lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the, The blackjack table has like space under it for your wheelchair. Yeah. And someone to like hold your cards in front of your face. And what would you be? What would I be wearing at the casino? In the mob, yeah. No, in the mob. I don't know. I didn't never really watch The Sopranos for the sake of the mob mob fantasy element of it. If we did have a mob of only disabled people, how would it go? I would run a disabled arcade. It would be a front, and but but it would have like top of the line PCs. No, but what I'm trying to get at is everyone in the mob is disabled. So I get that your instinct is to run stuff. And you probably would, but we would also need to have disabled street people who actually go around and enforce our rules. And so I'm trying to figure out how that would look. It'd be funny if we just like, we would just like bleed businesses that like had inaccessible venues. That would be such a good mob. Yeah. (laughs) We, We like... We don't actually like exploit them. We just like pressure them into letting other wheelies into their establishments. Yeah. Instead of being like, where's the money? Be like, where's the ramp? Yeah. What are you going to install that fucking ramp, you fuck? (laughs) I've been trying to get into your fucking deli for two years. All I want is a fucking sandwich. What is this? Instead of Fury being like, pass it the pepper, he (laughs) would be like, press it the button on the elevator. All right, well, we've covered Disabled Mob, so I can scratch that off my list for today. Should we talk about the movie? Yeah, I guess. You definitely look like Christopher, though. Thank you. I mean, I'll take it as a compliment. Have I ever asked, are you officially a redhead? I'm not a redhead. I'm Ukrainian. There can't be a Ukrainian redhead? I I don't think there can. Like, as soon as you have pierogies before the age of five, your hair turns brown? Yeah, exactly. I feel like you have reddish hair. No, no, it's dirty blonde. It's pretty. You're probably just seeing the reflection of my mic on my like face. No, I mean I've seen you in person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no people tell me I have blonde hair all the time, and I don't see it. No, it's brown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. People just seem to. I have like light 
body hair, which is great because I have too much of it. If it was dark, it would be a sweater. But doesn't that mean... <laughs> but, but doesn't that help, like, during mosquito season? Yeah, a little bit. They're trying to, like, find their way through the forest. Yeah. The other day, I got bit by a mosquito with a machete. <laughs> All right, tell us about this movie, Jamie. Okay, so we watched Edward Scissorhands, and I'm pretty sure everyone knows what's up with Edward Scissorhands. I don't think that's true, because I didn't. Well, I mean, I knew I knew that it was a man with scissors for hands. Yeah. But I thought it was like a scary, dark movie. And it wasn't. Yeah, you thought I was trying to get you to watch some kind of like um, weird, weird, surreal horror film. Yeah. But this is, that's not, that's not at all what it was. Not even as close. It was amazing. Yeah, it's from the early career of visionary director Tim Burton, whose image has been largely appropriated by the the uh, retail chain Hot Topic. But he um, he actually has like a very like distinct and I think uh, wonderful uh, cinematic aesthetic. Anyway, Edward Scissorhands is about a um, a cyborg. I suppose I don't know if he's like part human or if there's anything organic in him. Well, there's a heart-shaped sugar cookie. We're going to assume people have watched the movie, right? I, I guess we should, yeah, unless we want to go through the whole all the details. Um, but it's about a, a, a cyborg with, hands for, or with scissors for hands, played by Johnny Depp in his early to mid-20s. Uh, and this cyborg was manufactured by a, uh, a local um, inventor, I suppose, of like Rube Rube Goldberg, uh, like automated systems. <laughs> he lives in a small town, um, just off the forking off from a local suburb, in a large, twisty Halloween-looking castle. And like, I guess he's he's the resident Victor Frankenstein, who also looks a lot like Hugh Hefner, and I think is the same actor who voiced uh, the brain in the Steven Spielberg produced. Uh, WB cartoon Pinky and the Brain. Well, also, all the houses in town are like pastel, like just washed in color. Yeah. So it's a really great contrast to just a gray, although pretty cool looking castle. I don't know. Think like 1989 Batman. Like that's kind of where this, um, this inventor lives. Uh, and he creates uh, machines for um, making breakfast for himself or um, cook like sugar cookies. And one day he decides he's lonely and he's going to try to create a robot with feelings. And so he uh, constructs Edward Scissorhands, then subsequently dies. He has a stroke in the middle of teaching Edward um, like, uh, like morals and ethics. Well, he taught him morals and ethics, but he was actually just about to give him hands. Oh, right, right. He was about, like, he initially uh, creates the model with scissors for hands. I'm not really sure why. Only makes sense given his name, right? It would have been weird if his name was Edward Scissorhands and they used spoons. Well, I don't think his name was formally Scissorhands, like, on his, like, robot uh, birth certificate no that's just like the moniker that the film gives him because it describes his appearance i think he was given scissors for hands initially because that's all the inventor had like lying around his um mad mad scientist lab it's hilarious that you're like 
acting as if I was serious about that. <laughs> In any case, yeah, uh, the, um, Hugh Hefner is about to give Edward real or like anatomically correct hands. And then he has a stroke and like passes out and dies right in front of Edward. And he's kind of like left alone in this house to like, like tend to the grounds and stuff. And so one day at the start, like the, the formal start of the film, um, this like uh, makeup saleswoman play, played by uh, Diane Weiss, I think her name is. Who we've actually covered already. Yeah, she's the same actress who played the um, the elderly victim, the primary elderly victim of Rosamund Pike in I Care a Lot. And I love her as an actress. Yeah, She's my favorite. She plays a, a really important bit role in one of my favorite films of all time. She is like a fine wine, too. She really did, yeah. She definitely looked after herself over the years. Uh, and she's very good in this role as well. But anyway, <clears throat> so she plays this... Um, um makeup saleswoman who's kind of like going around door to door in her suburb trying to convince women to buy a new skin cream or apply a new makeup or whatever and so she's going around to each of these sort of pastel like idyllic uh residences and and the women inside are like repressed and they're angry and they're resentful and they treat her like absolute garbage and you get the sense that despite that she's like peddling commercial products that she actually kind of believes in their ability to improve the lives of her her neighbors, these people who she addresses by name, and she knows them well. She's not trying to manipulate them, but she is trying to make a living. And this is all sort of conveyed uh, within the first few interactions of her <clears throat> with these women in her neighborhood. Still, like if she was in real life, she would be the most genuine person I will ever meet. Yeah, she could sell me anything. Like, you know, she could be one of those uh, people from Bell who sit outside your apartment complex and try to sell you terrible internet for a, a worse monthly rate than you currently have. She would also be like the type of person that would like, you'd go to her house for dinner and she'd cook you like burnt everything, but you'd want to eat it anyway just because she's so nice. Yeah, because like the like resounding like, positive intention of her hospitality would come through no matter what yeah she's a she's just a like a fucking awesome um caretaker for a wheelie who is edward scissorhands um so she kind of runs out of houses or people that she could potentially sell makeup to and she comes across the inventor's house which is dark and foreboding and like at the top of a crazy driveway i don't know she essentially approaches a haunted house to find Johnny Depp like sitting alone at the top floor of his home. Before that, though, I really loved how she's walking up to the house and you can see all of these grass sculptures. Yeah. That he's made out of hedges and stuff. Yep. To give you an idea of what kind of person he might be, he's got some like auspicious talent or something. Yeah. But you don't really know anything about him because the front yard looks beautiful. Uh-huh. And in this scene, I was wondering like, what would it have been like if we were writing the movie and we, one of us was living in this house? Uh-huh. Like what would we have put in the front yard to try to convey who you're about to meet? <laughs> you you mean objects that are like, like synecdoches of disability yeah 
I think you would decorate the front of your house the same way you would decorate your apartment. There would just be this like this general sense that the disabled person who lives here is highly functional and has a whole lot of provisions <laughs> to ensure that he gets through his day like with relative autonomy. I would have a Rube Goldberg machine that opens my mailbox and delivers my mail under the door. Yeah, a Rube Goldberg machine that shaves your, your chest when it gets totally out of hand. That would be amazing. I've actually thought about Rube Goldberg machines that would feed me dinner. Okay. I don't want to give away too much because I'm still working on the patent. Right, right. Do you think that's something we could actually try to build like with uh, <laughs> with like DIY um, Raspberry Pis or whatever? At the very least, you just put a bunch of spoons on a spindle and then you just like put a bowl under it and the spoons are spinning. <laughs> And it like scoops something up and then you're behind it just trying to catch it as it catapults the food out of it. That would be wonderful to try to build that just as a lark and to have it scored by that like whimsical Danny Elfman (laughs) music that plays in this film as well, which I want to talk about. Where did we leave off? She enters the home. We're three minutes into the movie. Yeah, we're three minutes into the movie. Well, no, no, we give some more context, whatever. So this is the thing is that like, although Edward's home seems sort of like tentatively uninviting, uh, just like when it's juxtaposed uh, with the like brightly colored and like uh, superficially inviting suburb, uh, it's actually not very scary. Like there's a, the movie has a lot of compassion for Edward. um, And it's like, it's always sort of suggesting that, like the the black or the bleak aesthetic uh, is actually just like an uh, an indication of society's interpretation of him. Yeah, yeah. It it never others him. Like the film always positions Edward as the the most relatable character in any given scene, despite that he hardly ever speaks. Um, that he is clearly uncomfortable in almost any sort of social uh, interaction. He never quite knows what to say, even when people are approaching him like openly and friendly. Diane discovers Edward just kind of hanging out in his bed at the top of the house. And in the maybe the weirdest development in the movie, she just kind of like decides to bring him home with her. Yeah, she 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 sort of like gives him the once over and sees that he has these uh, hands made of scissors, and she and also that his face is covered in scars, and it's it's evident that the scars are not self inflicted. You know, I don't think he engages in any kind of destructive behavior, but that merely existing in the day to day is hard. And it's all over his face. And so she kind of looks at him and she's like, maybe this is, maybe I can give you some kind of skin cream to treat your, um, your wounds. <laughs> and she's like, why don't you come home with me? And uh, we'll see, we'll see what we can do. And then he becomes a permanent fixture in her domestic life. And it's, I, at, at first, I don't know if you feel the same way, Tony, but um, I was wondering if she lived alone. Yeah, she definitely had Like spinster vibes at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. That's the perfect word for it. Um, But no, she has two children and she's happily married. Her husband is uh, good to her. 
uh, and he's a, a good father. And uh, they like, yeah, there's there's really like very little domestic dysfunction in her existing life pre Edward, and yet she decides I want to uh, try to assimilate this young man into my my life. That whole development is kind of glossed over, but there's something about it that weirdly works. Yeah, I think her her whole demeanor is just she's kind of like a warm embrace of a person. Yeah. And so her family exudes that, her husband exudes that, she exudes that in their build up, the walk up to her Avon sales. And then she exudes it when she immediately she's not scared of Edward. She's not intimidated. She's never discouraged by the seeming inaccessibility of his house. Yeah. The quirkiness of him and she just wants to basically help, which is I think it's it's a believable premise. Yeah, like the the sort of emotions at play are real and also shared cuz I think you take one look at him and you kind of you want to you want to understand how the fuck he got there. He, he's in this like all leather getup. He looks like he stumbled into the costume department of the Batman movie. I still don't know how he put those clothes on. I yeah. guess the scientist did it for him. Right. I think it's sort of implied that, that the leather is part of him. It's not even clothing. As Edward leather legs. <laughs> the minute I decided that I really loved this movie was when she gets him back to her place and she's kind of like showing him around the house. She she like gives him her daughter's room because Winona Ryder is away for the weekend with her friends. And so she's like, oh, you can just stay here for now. And he like goes to get dressed, essentially. She gives him normal people clothes because I guess in his leather, he's effectively naked. And so she's like, here, put these on. And then he can't figure out how to get dressed with his scissor hands. Because whenever he tries to put on the shirt or to get the pants over his legs, he's like accidentally cutting like the belt loops or like basically fucking up. And that's kind of exactly what it feels like to stuff yourself in clothing when you have cerebral palsy and you can't actually you can't actually use your brain to move your legs into your pant legs. You have to physically pick up your legs, even though they kind of know some of the some of how it should be done. And it's not completely your upper body that you're doing the all the work with. But you know, it's clumsy and it looks awkward and it looks borderline deeply frustrating and that just like came across instantly to me and i was like this is a wheelie movie yeah you identified with him in that moment yeah it was also very much a wheelie movie to me when he gets on the bed and it's a water bed yeah he immediately accidentally pokes a hole in the bed and water starts spurting up the top and that's exactly how i feel going to a friend's new house and i'm like i hope i don't scrape the side of a door or like turn and hit a wall or something. Yeah. Because like people are usually understanding in those situations, but like whenever you accidentally do something to an able-bodied person's living space that requires them to patch drywall or to embark upon some sort of renovation, that's going to take away some part of their Sunday afternoon or something it's immediately a little bit more than like like a minor inconvenience. 
Yeah, and it's easy to get stuck in your own head about it. Oh, for You're sure. You're just like, oh, no, what have I done? Like, now it's going to be a big deal, and every time I come over, they're going to put bubble wrap all over the house. And Especially if they have, like, a beautiful home, and they have all kinds of little knickknacks and throw yeah. pillows from home since. And, like, you know... And those it, are usually the homes I'm most afraid of because they're most lived in, so there's less space. Yeah. The new homes are generally open, and they're still nice, but there's more room to turn around. Yeah, and when we were in university and you go, like, fuck around in your, in your like, guy friend's townhouse where he lives with four other, like, idiots who don't look after their space all that well, you don't really care if you contribute to the chaos, but when they're... When your friends are settled down and you could potentially obstruct their uh, their little piece of domesticity with your inconvenient power chair, <laughs> it's annoying, even though it shouldn't really be a thing. <laughs> what? You raised your eyebrows at me. Did I? You did, yeah. I think I was just itching my forehead. So <laughs> it was itchy, okay? Oh, the the mosquito found the one place where, the, where there is a tear. <laughs> and when I have a mosquito, the other day I was out at the beach till like 9 p.m. And all of a sudden the mosquitoes just flocked. I, that's my defense. I feel like a cow without a tail. So I'm just like twitching my face so they can't land on me. Because uh-huh. it's the one patch of skin that isn't hairy. Right, 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 right. So it's defenseless, yeah. Shame. But somehow a doctor can't find blood to save their life. Oh, yeah, when they poke you with a fucking needle. Just like hire some mosquitoes. (laughs) Oh, that was a good one. (laughs) You know what else I liked about this movie, Tony? What? Edward's scissorhands are, they look dangerous as fuck. Yeah, they're so long. They're like nine inches long. It looks like he could accidentally harm somebody very easily just by grazing them. And the implication is that they're super sharp. Yep. Like he accidentally just touches something and it's they're punctured or snipped off or whatever. Yep. Like drywall will peel easily. His yeah. clothes, he's constantly having to patch up his clothes. And throughout the film... You notice that his like people outfits, his regular people outfits are are more and more patched up. He sleeps on on his back uh-huh. uh, with with his hands out above the covers. Yep, pointed basically up like a mummified Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yep, yeah, because he has nowhere to put his arms. It's almost like uh, the way Elephant Man has to sleep in a particular way so as not to break his neck. Yeah, he like he needs to sleep in a way that might uh, deter him from rolling over because he if he did, he could accidentally impale himself. What I liked about this movie was it's maybe the most generally digestible wheelie movie we've watched to date. Like its allegory for disability is is distanced enough from reality that it it's still sort of very effectively explores disability issues without being too overt no yeah exactly it's 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 easy for anyone to watch it because it's just a beautiful movie the creative direction is awesome yeah the set design is really cool the costumes are really cool the acting is great it feels like a cartoon but it, it doesn't shy away from 
the metaphor of disability at all. It really doesn't. Uh, Edward also has a ton of agency, like despite, despite being socially awkward. Well, he also has a very good parent. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's two things. So about the agency though, like, you know, I always complain that movies about like disability or chronic illness are always too much harping on the immediate experience of that disability or illness and too much like betraying its kind of like able-bodied anxiety toward that circumstance. Edward doesn't really do that. Like he's not constantly demoning or sorry, bemoaning his scissor hands. He has hobbies. And very quickly after being adopted by Diane, he starts helping around the house, like like doing like chores around the garden. Excuse me. Like he starts, for example, cutting hedges into um, elaborate uh, shapes and figurines and stuff. And people in the local community take notice and they appreciate Edward uh, and like ascribe him with a certain amount of celebrity, not because of his hands, but because of like the utility of his situation and what he does with them. He starts giving haircuts. Yeah. He's st- and you actually called that too. Cause he re- like, he finds a, a scraggly dog like running around the neighborhood and he, there's this sweet little moment where he uses his hand to cut away the, uh, the hair in front of the eyes of the dog. So the dog can see him better. <laughs> and then they kind of like embrace or whatever. Um, And so there's these little like really thoughtful moments where you can tell that Burton has like constructed a world where he really wants to explore what it means to be Edward. Um, And Diane constantly encourages him, you know, to keep uh, trimming hedges and to work with the neighbors and keep cutting hair and every like she's even when he makes mistakes or when he trips up or he, he doesn't know how to handle a situation. She's always kind of there to, to nudge him onward. And yeah. she, she actively uh, introduces him to people around the neighborhood and to members of her family. Like, you know, her daughter comes home uh, prematurely uh, one evening and finds Edward in her bed and immediately um, Winona Ryder assumes that he's, a stranger firstly and an attacker which is you know probably reasonable but um the mother is very quick to be like no 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 he's he's totally all right he's completely harmless you got to meet him you got to say hello you like you got to accommodate him give him a chance and people do and so he has a purpose in the community and sure uh, like the, the people who interact with him the first time around they're they're pretty ignorant uh, you know, their their kindness is like a little bit frustrating, maybe, or dubious. It's purely out of a kind of sympathy that uh, is pretty common of perfect strangers who encounter disabled people for the first time. But the whole way the movie handles Edward's introduction to this, to the, to the able-bodied world, essentially, is really wonderful. One recurring line that ha- that uh, is said to An- uh, Edward repeatedly is, uh, oh, I know a doctor that might be able to help you. And there's never a scene where he meets a doctor and tries to fucking fix his hands. Even though he seems open to it, uh, his parents are so supportive that it never seems like something that he 
needs to pursue. Although by the end of the movie, you wonder if maybe he should have. The tension in the film is is sort of derived from waiting for the other shoe to drop, I guess. Like waiting for the community around him to ostracize him or for there to be a misunderstanding. Or for there to be like a murder accidentally or something. Yeah, for, for Edward to trip up and accidentally harm one of his customers. Yeah, and for him to be made into a uh, a monster. You're waiting for that like Frankenstein's monster moment. And uh, like it does unfortunately happen, but the circumstances behind it are are well established by the film. This This idyllic, suburban, colorful community is full of people who are deeply repressed and frustrated. There's a there's a uh, a desperate housewife who tries to come on to Edward um, when she's showing him uh, prospective properties for his hair salon. Um, she just really needs to get her rocks off, and he, of course, has no idea how to handle her uh, coming on to him, and so she interprets his rejection and his discomfort as a as a form of aggression or a faux pas or something and basically uh, gossips to the neighborhood that he's um he's actually not a good person here's a fun clip of the movie it actually is one of the first spoken real disability moments where you really realize that it's a disability movie and it's got a couple pretty fun disability tropes that, you know, they're so common to us that potentially they didn't even need a disabled person to be in the writer's room to figure them out. But uh, I thought it was, it was a relatable part. They're at the barbecue together and this happens. Damn thing. Listen, don't you ever let anybody tell you you have a handicap. Who's handicapped? My goodness. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. You're not handicapped. You're, what do they call that? Exceptional. And so there's like two things there. Every wheelie has gotten the, oh, but like, yeah, my friend had a goldfish that only had three fins, so I know what it's like to be disabled. You know, you've we've all gotten that before where someone is trying to relate to you and the intention is pure. But it's usually, it's usually like I broke my arm once, so I get it. Yeah, I, I think on three separate occasions, no word of a lie. Over the last uh, twelve years, while I was waiting for an airplane, I've had someone like, I, what, what is that? What, what's it called? The waiting area of an airplane terminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone at the terminal, like an older individual, an elderly person, uh, tell me about their hip replacement. Or the, or the plate that they have in their femur or their knee surgery. Yeah. Sometimes it's not even them. Sometimes it's, it's like a friend or like a pet. Like they think that they understand it because, yeah, my buddy, he uh, fell off a pickup truck once. And now, you know, he always has a limp. So I think he'll understand you. Okay, thanks. Um, so I, I'm going to pay by credit. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then the the other part of it is, like you mentioned, he, she's super hot for Eddie, potentially a devotee, 
Although I never really understood that part of it because, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about disabled people. And I'm sure Edward would make a great lover, but she seems really excited about what he's able to do with the scissors. Yeah. And I can't really imagine what that might be. I couldn't either. Because that doesn't seem like a very fun experience. At least you don't have to deal with like bra clasps, I guess. I don't have an imagination for that kind of stuff. But even from like a BDSM perspective, I don't see how those scissors could be used. Oh, that's true, actually. No, from a BDSM perspective, you could definitely. Well, I don't know if you really want to dive into that. but Yeah, I don't want to out myself too hard, I guess. All those times I strapped scissors to my fingers. (laughs) I was very blown away by this movie. It was endearing the whole way through. The conflict never seemed forced. You were on his side for everything the whole time. We also haven't really talked about it yet, but there's a whole... This movie ultimately is a romance, right? Yeah. We're on their side the whole time. The romance seems forced for maybe one scene where he's on TV and they're like, do you do you have anyone in your life? And he just like gazes into the camera and somehow Winona Ryder knows that he's thinking about her uh, before it's really established. Yeah, the like from a plot perspective, the movie doesn't really do a very good job of convincing us that Diane's daughter, played by Winona Ryder and Edward, um, actually have chemistry or like the means to fall in love. But nonetheless, there is that romantic element. I think the the finale of the film. It like has a couple pretty special moments that actually do work for whatever reason. And I'm not sure if it's because there's like a kind of pre-existing um, chemistry between Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp. Cause I think they, they were involved uh, around that time. Like, I think they were like a nineties couple, I think. So that could be part of it, but who, who was uh, Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp? They were actually, I think they were. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that could be coming across for whatever reason. But yeah, there there's like a whole plot where uh, Winona Ryder's existing able-bodied boyfriend, Anthony Michael Hall, is like an, an aggressive alcoholic jock. And he's constantly sort of using Edward for other skills that he has. Like he has an impeccable ability to um, jimmy locks with his scissor finger. And so he... Um, comes up with a plot to have Edward break into his father's uh, uh, man cave. Scissor Fingers would have been a great name for this movie. Scissor Fingers? Yeah. That, that, I mean, maybe the porn adaptation. But again, that's uh, some BDSM stuff that I can't really imagine properly. I mean, you just jumped for it from Scissor Fingers to porn, so I think you have an imagination enough. Tony, don't act like I'm the one who made the correlation (laughs) (laughs) okay i'll stop acting i'll edit all the parts where you brought it up first (laughs) so anyway what sort of starts the ball rolling of edward being ostracized from the community is the tension that exists between uh winona Ryder's boyfriend who feels threatened by edward because of uh what a hardworking and invested member of the community that he is and just how sort of unconditionally he cares about Winona Ryder. Like, yeah, there's some, there's an element of attraction and whatnot, 
like Edward, you know, has a libido, I suppose. Hopefully it's not a scissor dick. Yeah, I was wondering that too. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, so he convinces Edward to break into his father's man cave and steal some electronics. During that scene, the home security device or whatever activates and like everyone flees except for Edward. He gets stuck in the man cave and he's unable to open the door because he doesn't have opposable thumbs. So he's just sort of like hopelessly scratching away at a doorknob. Except he does have thumbs. They come out way later in the movie that he has thumbs. Oh, is that a plot hole? Yeah, there was definitely a part of the movie. I think I pointed it out when we were watching it. I don't remember what happened, but he was doing something that were using thumbs. Well, in any case, I don't know then why, but he can't figure out how to open a door, like just a regular doorknob. Yeah. And I was like, I was actually really feeling for him in that moment. Because how many times have you been stuck behind a fucking like able-bodied inaccessible door and they like there's no foot traffic coming that can open it for you and you have no other recourse so i in order for me to use the elevator i can't use my hands to just push the button i have to raise my chair up and then hit one of the buttons using the push bar on the back of my chair oh and so i can't actually see the push bar so i've just gotten really good at guessing what height it might be relative <laughs> to where I am. You know, I'm decently good at it, but the elevator button in my building is not much bigger than the push bar. So I have to be pretty accurate. And there are definitely times where either the elevation thing on my chair isn't working or my hands are too cold to really do it properly, uh-huh. where I'm just stuck in the elevator being like, I hope someone's coming soon because I'm just chilling in the elevator hoping that someone gets on. And then what's what's funny is often what will happen is I'll be in the elevator waiting for anyone. (laughs) They'll push the button, see me, open up the door. Obviously, I scare them because why is there a person just sitting in the elevator? (laughs) And then... In the in the idle elevator, like in the dark. Yeah, it's not moving. There's yeah, a... like the light is off because it's motion motion sensor based, and you're just <laughs> like. <laughs> There's a light in the lobby that tells you what floor the elevator is on, so they're probably looking. Oh, it's right here, ready to go. And then they push the door, and I'm just sitting there, like, "Hey, come on in." <laughs> you're like you're like Tobin Bell from Saw, like, "Hello, Doctor Gordon," or something. I want to play a game. (laughs) I want to play elevator. (laughs) The rules are simple. Push six for me, please. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) I love that. Please. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be a polite psychopath. Yeah, yeah. As a wheelie, you can't afford to be a tyrannical psychopath. Or what usually happens is they don't get in. They'll see me there. They'll get spooked. Yeah. And then they'll be like, I'll take the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, take the, <laughs> I'll take the stairs. And then you, you have to wait for the first person that isn't scared to see you. <laughs> or I'll be like, could you hit the elevator button for me? But they're usually gone by then. <laughs> yeah, that's a game I play pretty often with myself. That's so funny. <laughs> You're just sitting there patiently. <laughs> I'm just like, well, someone's going to be here eventually. Right? Yeah. 
<laughs> but then the odd time it's like two in the morning <laughs> and i'm like i don't know if anyone's coming <laughs> it's just gonna be like the shadiest person in the building we actually have a guy in our building who has some mental health problems mm-hmm. he often is in the elevator crouched in the corner like the the corner that's hard to see yeah with a pair of scissors or a knife thematically appropriate elevator knife man <laughs> and he's like in the corner where you don't see him initially uh-huh. so you actually go into the elevator and then he's just there and i definitely skipped a beat a few times but the interesting thing is i don't know what's happening but he often has the knife up like to his temple or his neck Ooh. and it's like terrifying but i need him to push the elevator button <laughs> so I just start making small talk with him. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And that makes him lower the scissors, which is always nice because I feel less threatened for his safety and mine. And then I'll just be like, oh, it's getting a bit warmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, could you hit six for me, please? And then he'll do it. But he's actually like one of the most helpful guys. And when he's not having an episode or whatever, I'll see him. Uh, as he's getting out of the elevator and I'm waiting for the elevator, mm-hmm. he'll see me and go back in to push the button. He'll be like, what floor do you want? Is it is it like evident that he's, um, is it like an attention-seeking gesture or does it look almost involuntary? Like, is he? Yeah, it looks involuntary. I think it's, I don't know. I don't want to make too many assumptions, but. Do you ever ask him if he's okay? Like a check? Yeah, all the time. And I'm yeah. always like, hey, how are you? And he just like nods his head. Okay. You know, maybe he's just lonely or so. I don't know. And again, but most people run the other way when they see him. Uh-huh. But partially as a product of me needing him to hit the elevator button. But partially, you know, he doesn't scare me because I don't think I don't think he's the type of person who wants to harm someone else. If anything, he might just harm himself. Yeah, if he's been there for a while and it's yeah. So I just like to talk to him. That's a very odd situation, but I think you handle it perfectly. Well, it definitely gets me where I'm going. <laughs> I think it helps him because anytime I talk to him, he'll like lower the weapon yeah, and just start talking. And so I just keep talking to him. It's interesting that he chooses the elevator. Like, does he feel safer in there? Like, is it just that he knows that he'll be in close proximity to other people and maybe that little interaction is actually what he needs to put the weapons away? I don't know. No, I think usually when people get in, he has no real interest in other people getting in there with him. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to try to diagnose him. Yeah, no, me neither. I just, it's... Just interesting, I guess. It is interesting, but it's it's ironic that potentially the scariest guy in the building is probably the most helpful when it comes to the elevator. I mean, that's kind of what Tim Burton is arguing in Edward Scissorhands. Exactly. <laughs> and he's holding scissors. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Elevatoring with scissors. Um, elevator scissor man. What an appropriate anecdote, Tony. Good, good job. <laughs> I was saving it for the right movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this other clip in the movie where they're at the bank and basically uh, he's trying to get a loan mm-hmm. because he wants to start. Edward's trying to get a loan. Yeah. To start a salon, is it? Mm-hmm. 
first of all, you and I both loved this scene because they're they're at dinner and they're talking like, all right, I guess you know if you want to start us along, next thing to do is get a loan. And he's like, a loan? What is that? What is a bank? Why do you go to the bank? And the father explains the value of going to the bank to get a loan. As we've talked about, the whole set is bright and colorful and pastel colors and inviting and cheerful. It's a, it, it really has like Whoville vibes to me. Yeah, it's a heightened reality, but like very clearly, um, I, it's like very clearly like in the mind of a creative person. It's really, I don't, there's so few movies nowadays that have curated set design that feel like they take place in an alternate world that you want to be in. And it is like a social commentary, but it also draws you in a lot. Like you want to give the movie like all of your attention because <clears throat> it's clearly um, very deliberately uh, constructed. And there's all kinds of really cool like overhead miniature shots of uh, of Edward's house and of the neighborhood itself. And even though the neighborhood is like the director clearly resents th- that suburbia and uh, all the lies that are within um, and just how much it like naturally alienates like a creative and independently minded individuals like Edward or like uh, Winona or Diane even. Um there's, there's, you, you still want to like be in that world. It's very daydreamy, a little surreal, uh-huh. but in a way that's inviting. Yeah, like movies nowadays too. They're just, they're all like so uninventive that way. Think of your your average Marvel movie, despite uh, um, being ostensibly about um, supernatural creatures that have like cra- crazy powers. And whatnot, like all the creativity goes into the choreography and in the realization of the comics and whatnot, but the actual like aesthetics of the of the scene and the, the scenes and the cinematography and the like visual composition is quite often like bereft of any r- creativity. Like they're trying to be grounded and real, and it sucks. Well, especially with Marvel movies, I think it's there's a almost an obligation, but definitely a goal to appeal to the masses. Yeah. So they don't want to make any sort of extreme decision that might ostracize potential audiences, which I think is to its own fault. But I do think it's trying too hard. A lot of them are trying too hard to be a little bit of everything, whereas Tim Burton is just confidently what he is. Yeah, at least in his early career, he is for sure. Right. I, I have only seen this movie. Uh, this is coming from somebody who used to absolutely, absolutely love the Christopher Nolan Batmans and whatnot. Used to? Yeah, I still do. Come on. Fine, whatever. When no one's looking, I'll watch Once a week, you do the Heath Leather Joker. No, I don't. Want to know how I got off the toilet today? <laughs> That's how I got these scars. <laughs> But anyway, I wanted to bring it back to the scene, which goes from what we were just describing to, you know, like, we should go see a bank. We should go to a bank. Yeah. An instant cut where the music fades, everything fades. Yeah, no color whatsoever. Yeah, the bank, just gray. Yeah. It just says bank. Yeah. It looks, yeah, you described it as like, like a bathroom stall. It looks like the inside of a public bathroom in like a... Uh, like a donut shop, uh, 
in Terrace Bay or something. It's a purposely drab facility, which is a quick but really significant commentary. Yeah. You know, the whole movie is about let yourself be your authentic true self. Don't get too stuck up in society's expectations of you and all this other stuff. Yep. And then for a second, the movie forces Edward to try to get on that grind. Uh-huh. And the grind itself is super drab. To to commodify his talents. Exactly. People instantly want him to um to leverage his celebrity and to get to work. And the movie like clearly resents that, but it doesn't beat you over the head with it. No. It was it was the funniest part of the movie to me. It was hilarious. That transition was we watched it like three times. Yeah, we did. It's like it's like Tim Burton, like he had this like fleet of overworked set designers, and on the day where they filmed the bank scene, he's just like, "Don't come to work today. I just fucking take the day off. I'm just gonna yeah, yeah. I'm gonna film the inside of a McDonald's bathroom down the street. Just fuck off, okay? Yeah. And so yeah, like th- there's this scene where. Edward has this conversation with the banker. Yeah. And the guy's like, yeah, we can't help you. You have no assets. You got nothing. Well, here, let me just play it. Yeah. We simply can't do it. Now, get yourself a social security card, establish credit, and buy yourself a car. You have a decided advantage. You can get one of those handicap placards, no problem, and park anywhere you like. Oh, my God. Do you know how many people have, have like, espoused the... um the benefits of disability to me. And like, we've, we've talked about this before so many times. You don't have to stand. Yeah. You can park wherever you want. I'd never park anywhere. I park wherever the fuck I want already. Yeah. And also, unless you're in an emergency or you really can't find a place to get your wheelchair out of the vehicle. Yeah. Don't park everywhere you want just because you've got this sticker. Yeah, able-bodied people are more excited to fucking use this sticker than a disabled person has ever been ever. Yeah, because I was like, oh, I could get, I could get as close as I want to the sports stadium. Or it's one of my pet peeves when when someone uses my sticker when yeah. I'm not there, and they're like, oh, I got there was no parking, but I was able to use the handicap sticker. I'm like, don't do that. Yeah, I had a buddy in high school that chronically forgot to give me back the fucking sticker, and he'd be like. Oh, whatever, bro. You don't use it. I keep mine on the fridge so that I have to give it to someone if I want to use it. It's totally just for able-bodied people. It's not for us. I, I get it if your disability is that it's hard to walk far. Yeah. But yeah. for you and me in a chair, in an electric wheelchair, yeah, a power wheelchair, some people hate when you say electric wheelchair. Really? Why? Because it's like the electric chair. Is that actually a thing? Like That's a real life? thing. Some Why people like, get really caught up if you say electric wheelchair. Really? They're like, it's not an electric wheelchair. That's how you give people death. <laughs> it's a power chair. Power. It has the power. Get out of here. Get to the wheelchair. Get down. Get to the accessible chopper. <laughs> My friend's going to hate me for that. Get to the elevator. Push six. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. Yeah, if you're in a manual chair, I can see it being annoying to have to wheel yourself from the back of a parking lot. Yeah. But in general, I like driving my chair. I actually enjoy it. Oh, I do too. You know, that is something people say, wow, that looks fun. And although it's cliche and maybe a little ignorant because I wish I didn't have to use it, it is fun. 
It can be fun, yeah. Especially when you—that's pretty fun. Like when you can drive it on open asphalt and there's no chance of hitting like an like an errant like curb lip, and then just like accidentally knocking your pelvis out of the seat. I was daydreaming about about this recently. I used to have a wheelchair that, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just like the perfect center of mass. I was able to do donuts in this chair, like burning rubber on pavement donuts. Yeah, and your head would always stay in the right spot? Well, that was back when I had like a Hulk neck compared to today. Oh, but your neck was Bruce Banner? It was impressive. I remember, I remember doing donuts to the point where like I would leave black marks on the floor. Holy shit. And like, that was real fun for me. Yeah, you were a rebel without a cause, dude. Going back to that quote, I mean, uh, that was a great line and a great delivery. Another really great really moment. Uh, I was just going to say, like, there, there's kind of an interesting uh, uh, sen- sentiment there or subtext. Like, <clears throat> Edward, by this point in the film, is very well known in his local community. He's achieved a certain amount of notoriety and celebrity. He's been featured on television, as we said, and... He's got a a very good um, reputation with like all of the residents, essentially. Everyone loves him at this point. And the banker still like uniformly rejects him. Like he has no confidence that a disabled person will be able to pay back the loan, essentially. There's some commentary there, is there not? Yeah, well, that's like a, a real important part of it is, first of all, it's already so hard for a disabled person in today's society to get off social assistance and to get credit and to buy assets and to check all of the boxes that the gray boring bank wants from you. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure that the evil body world like assumes that we have like no financial life that like all wheelies are broke. Like, is that an unfair assertion? Definitely unfair. Yeah. But I don't even know if it's unfounded. No, but it's like, it's only systemically, like the reason we're broke is is one of us. Yeah. What what the fuck am I trying to say? No, it's a systemic problem for sure. Because, yeah, like how many wheelies do we know have three degrees and still find it so incredibly hard? To enter the workforce. Yeah. And also it's a product of the time as well. And most millennials um, really struggle to work nowadays. But I mean, even even between the two of us, there are societal milestones that we're coming up on or passing because of the fact that it's it just is inherently you're further from the starting line when you start. So you have further to go to get to the milestones. I think that's uh, it's a completely accurate representation of disability. Yeah, it's it's hard for disabled people to make it, as it were. Unfortunately, to the point where when you do, it's almost inspirational. Like, it's almost inspirational when a wheelie has a good job or something. Inspirational to who? To not wheelies. Yeah. It's definitely a societal issue. It's a systemic one. I always am optimistic that we are improving all the time to break down these barriers and get rid of stigmas like that. But as a disabled person, 
I'm almost overcompensating for those things by trying to look more professional or more put together or more on top of my shit. More bougie? Yeah, because if I don't, then it's easy for people to just think the opposite of you. Yeah, to re- to revert to base assumptions. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's stressful to always have to be a fucking counterexample or an exception to the rule. And ultimately, you don't have to be, but there just, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, in my core group of friends, even when I wasn't working or whatever, nobody cared. Oh, yeah. But I always felt inadequate because I didn't have the thing that I was supposed to have for hitting the milestones at the times my other peers were doing it. Yeah, and you bl- you blame yourself first before you blame obstacles that are unique to your situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On that note, wheel breakers. Yeah, let's play a wheel breakers. Wheel breakers. Jamie. Uh-huh. What if I told you that I could make you able-bodied, but... You would have scissors for hands. <laughs> Mine was going to be similar. I was going to say... Well, answer the question first. Okay. Um, I would try it out. Because Edward Scissorhands was optimistic about Edward's ability to be autonomous and succeed. And to also be creatively uh, fulfilled. Like, his problems had nothing to do with his hands. It was all about how he was fucking received, which is exactly what I keep saying is the true fucking obstacle of disability. So, yes, I would be Edward. No problem. It's weird that you always say that. End of sentence? Remember how I was telling you my tongue does those spasms every once in a while? Oh, yeah, that happened? So I was just, like, looking around as if I was thinking, but really I was waiting for my tongue to stop doing somersaults. Ah, it's weird that you always say you think that way, but then when I bring up something like the social model of disability, you reject it. Like, we've talked about how the social model of disability says you are not disabled. The environment makes you disabled by not offering stairs. And you hate that. I never said that my ableism didn't contradict my disability politics. I respect that you're open to your own cognitive dissonance. Yeah. But that is one that doesn't really make sense to me. I get it. It's just like, you know, like like the technical debt of like old legacy computer systems. Yeah. You know, like the foundation of some major technology titan, like uh, Sony PlayStation uh, in the West. Like their their online store is built entirely using an old javascript framework and it's 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 had that like kernel or nucleus operating on top of that for the last 15 years and to try to rip all that old technical debt out and replace it with a brand new storefront would cost millions and millions of dollars and like is obviously not profitable for for sony it's like when people say that everything everywhere should always be accessible that always seems to me like like the part of my brain that is afraid of scope creep triggers. And then I start having ableist thoughts like, oh, that's 
infeasible. How can you make how can you make the Eiffel Tower accessible? Yeah, but what if I argued that and and was like, well, it's infeasible for all humans to change their perspective and their perception on disability. Yeah. It's the same argument. I, I suppose you're right. Yeah. And I mean, what is comfortable may not be functional. That's true. Yeah. And also our decision should not be driven, you know, by capitalistic motivation. Whether or not it's a feasible end goal doesn't necessarily negate its potential as an ideal. Yeah. Feasibility depends upon like your value system. Yeah. So I think when you're saying society is the cause of the insecurities of disability, yeah. also the environment makes your disability harder to navigate the world with. Yeah. It's almost the same thing where if society shifted, your disability wouldn't be such a mental hurdle to overcome. And if the environmental world changed, your disability wouldn't be such a physical burden to navigate the physical world. Yeah, yeah. That said, I don't think I would have scissors for hands. No? Because... You'd be afraid of harming the people you care about? One of my top love languages is physical touch. I know that you just I don't have to use my hands to touch, but I think I would miss that quite a bit. That was a very non-creepy way of expressing that. Good job, Tony. Think about how easy it would be to shave, though. Think about how easy it would be to say that creepily. (laughs) I just like touching people. (laughs) It would be very easy to shave. Although I've never used a straight razor. That scares me. I've always wanted to have that done because it's such a close shave. Maybe at a professional barbershop I would do it. Yeah, it would be cool. We talk about grooming a lot on this show. Did you you realize that? It takes up... Probably three days a week for me. Yeah, it's hard. I think about it all, all the time. I'm like, because I have one attendant that I really lean on for my beard because mm-hmm. she's just really good at it and I don't have to explain anything. She just does it while I'm still half asleep in the morning. I'm always thinking like, I wonder when I'm going to see her next. I also just really like her. So it's always a treat when I get to see her. Uh-huh. And she's kind of like a bit of sunshine in an otherwise dark morning routine every day i'm assuming you don't mean romantically because otherwise you wouldn't have announced it on the podcast no yeah i mean she's just a cool person she's a good friend i've known her for years but there's a little bit of like you know lovely day by bill withers when i wake up in the morning well you know yeah yeah that plays when you when you see her and the sunshine hurts my eyes Yeah, there's a little bit of like, because every morning I wake up and I'm like, am I ready for this two-hour grind of a routine to get up and get showered and get dressed? Mm -hmm. I know this is a very reactive way to think, but it's highly dependent on the person who ends up coming through the door. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, so when I know it's her, and obviously there are a few others that I also really enjoy. Do you immediately start singing to her in the shower? Just one look at you, <laughs> and I know it's going to be a lovely day. That song is great, but it, it ends on a really annoying note. What's the annoying note? I forget. 
He just ends up saying lovely day for like 14 minutes. <laughs> That's like typical of a song in the 70s, right? Yeah, like it's like two verses and then lovely day 473 times. <laughs> really fucking send, gets the message home. That's all. <laughs> it's a lovely fucking day. What's this song called again? <laughs> but yeah, so I don't think I would do it, but uh, I understand where you're coming from. Even during this movie, I was like, trying to come up with a way that he could put a glove on his hand with some kind of Kevlar material that would stop him from stabbing everything accidentally. Yeah, but the whole point was that the scissors weren't actually the problem. Yeah. The scissors helped him in almost every situation, except for when he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. Right. Well, no, when he was saving the brother from getting hit by the drunk driver. Mm-hmm. He was, he, it's a great thing he did that. It was weird that he wasn't able to stop himself in that moment. It was a little weird to me sometimes how he seemed to have so much control over his scissor hands to make like a life-size unicorn out of hedges. Yeah. But then in other moments, he couldn't help but turning a waterbed into a brick of mozzarella. Yeah, but I can't fucking... Oh, sorry. A water bread into a brick of mozzarella. I meant Swiss cheese. <laughs> Here I was calling you Italian at the start of this show. and Well, that's because as an Italian, I have mozzarella on the brain and not Swiss cheese. <laughs> what a waste of cheese you're paying for air. <laughs> Fuck Swiss cheese. Get it out of here. All right. So you would take the deal, real? Yeah, I would. Well, okay, so my favorite part of that movie was actually after uh, Edward dispenses with the abusive alcoholic ex-boyfriend of Winona Ryder. They they like w- uh, there's there's like the scene where they're supposed to kiss, or in any other movie they would kiss, but Edward's too nervous for that, so he's like trying to figure out how to embrace her, basically. And he can't, like he panics. He does the same thing with his hands where they just kind of click together awkwardly. And uh, Winona just like takes his arm and like sort of slides into, slides under him so he can hold her like from, from behind essentially. Yeah. And it's like really nice. It's a, it, like it plays out in a sort of non-traditional way. You, mm, Yeah. I feel, I love it when, Someone is able to give me a hug in a way that actually embraces our two bodies and they're not just hugging me. Because usually as a wheelie, I get hugged when I don't give hugs. Yeah, hugs are awkward as a wheelie, especially with someone who doesn't hug you on a regular basis. Especially when you don't have any control of your arms. Yeah, like, you know, obviously when people go to shake your hand and then they realize you can't shake it yeah, or whatever. but um. Yeah, it's always uncomfortable. And in in that sense, like Winona kind of diffused the situation and it made it like infinitely more like tender. Yeah, I just, I feel a lot more valued when someone is giving me a hug and they take that extra moment to like put my arm around them too. Uh-huh. I don't know, it's, it's really nice. And so I felt that for Edward in that moment when she was like, okay, well, I can't hug you the traditional way, but we can embrace this other way that will work for both of us. And instead of just being like, well, I can't hug you the way 
society wants me to hug you. We, you know, it, it's really touching in that moment to see. Tony, I don't really have a wheel breakers. Mine was going to be really dumb. Mine was dumb? What was yours going to be? I was going to be like, you get to be 100% able-bodied, but people call you Tony. Okay, wait, start again. You need to sell it. All right, so Tony, you get to be 100% able-bodied, okay? Got it. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. The cow jumped over the moon. You're going to be able to jump over the moon. <laughs> You'll be over the moon. People are going to call you Tony Dildo Fingers. <laughs> <laughs> are they obvious dildos? Like they're dick shaped? Yeah, and they vibrate. And you can't control when they vibrate. You're just adding stuff on the fly. <laughs> that wasn't part of it. <laughs> like all 10 fingers? Yeah, all 10 of them. Are they all the same size or different sizes? They're the same size as your standard fingers, but in... But my fingers are different sizes. So? Yeah, so I have like a big dildo, a little dildo, a pinky dildo. Pinky dildo, opposable thumb dildo. Legs might like it. That was my attempt at Christopher Walk. <laughs> what? <laughs> Whatever, it was perfect. <laughs> if a lady could love me... In spite of dildo fingers, I feel like that's true love. The thing is, people would assume that you like you have a prosthetic for hands and that you bought your prosthetic at Spencer's Gifts. Spencer's, is that a dildo store? No, that's a store that has like, you know, like annoying, like early 2000s era joke toys and like t-shirts that have like Austin Powers quotes on them. I don't know. Oh, okay, okay. I think same answer as you. I would try it out. I might, I might get some mileage out of it. Yeah, might be able to find find some use for them. At the very least, I probably have a job in the porn industry, right? Right. Yeah. Like dildo fingers, you know, Edward Scissorfingers starring dildo fingers. Yeah, I think I could make it work. I could start an OnlyFans, or rather, an OnlyHands. <laughs> Only hands. <laughs> you just you just made yourself die laughing. <laughs> All right, well, I'm gonna leave you there with that one. All right, man. Thanks for this episode. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, anything I want to say to the fans? Uh, I love you. 